and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm honored to welcome Susan Orlean to the program today. Susan is one of the most respected writers of nonfiction in America. In addition to her almost 30-year position as staff writer with The New Yorker, she has published many best-selling books, including The Orchid Thief, The Bullfighter Checks Her Makeup, and The Library Book. Today, we'll be talking about her latest, On Animals, which is published by Avid Reader Press. Well, Susan, thank you so much for joining us for Book Talk today. My pleasure. It's a subject that I enjoy talking about endlessly. Famously, W.C. Field said, never work with children or animals, but it seems like we'd lose at least 10% of the books in the world if we held to that. Yeah, and I think that certainly if you're doing a stage act in a vaudeville show, you would have a pretty tough challenge to come on after an animal act or a child. And I think that is certainly what he had in mind. Books have always included the world of animals and certainly everything from children's literature on. The subject of animals has fascinated us since we first began putting pen to paper. How is it different for you to write about an animal as opposed to a human being? There is a different kind of challenge to begin with, and most obviously, animals don't talk. So our usual interface uh, when we're doing a profile or reporting a story is through the medium of language. So suddenly you're confronted with a subject that you can't communicate with. Everything that you know about them or imagine about them has to come from inference and projection and in many cases in examining the people that exist around them. And these stories, as much as they are about animals, are also very much about the people who live with or love these these creatures. Do you even make an attempt to go past the projection that we're, we tend to anthropomorphize animals to actually kind of understand them more on their own terms? Or do you think that's just something that we're incapable of doing? I think that we can reach for that. It's never going to be as accessible to us as analyzing the inner life of, a, of another human. I think that you can go beyond the wrongheaded urge we have to anthropomorphize animals. Animals are not people, and they're behaviors that we recognize. They have the same urges that we have, or maybe the better way of putting it is that people are animals. We have animal urges to eat, to thrive, to reproduce. You know, these are common across the world of living beings. So there are certain impulses that we recognize absolutely. Beyond that, the temptation to imagine that you're seeing an animal behavior, the exact duplicate of human behavior, I think is a mistake. I, I just don't think animals and people are that closely aligned. And the temptation is powerful because otherwise we don't have a context to understand animals. 
but it's possible within the bounds of what we know rules their behavior to begin imagining what their life might feel like. And it seems that we often fall into the trap of thinking that the most intelligent animals are the ones that are able to obey our whims the best. Right. And yet I think that we are learning more and more that is not really true. The animals that we now know to have superior intelligence, some are willing or interested in obeying our whims and some have no interest. We've discovered the deep intelligence of octopus. And as far as I know, nobody has ever trained an octopus. It's probably possible to do because you can motivate almost any animal with food. You see that in the whole range of behavior that can be trained into animals is, you know, food is a pretty persuasive training tool, but there are a lot of animals that won't allow us into their world enough to let us use that tool to manipulate them. So I don't think it's really a measure of intelligence. It may be a measure of a particular ability to communicate. I'm not sure that's strictly intelligence. One of the worst feelings I think I can have is when it's apparent that someone is just judging me by how useful I can be to them. So I felt pretty sad when I was reading the piece about donkeys in Fez in the Medina in Morocco. Being useful is, you know, we certainly look at it as an, a kind of undignified capacity, the idea of being useful. But I did not see it as tragic. For one thing, if you treated a donkey well, and then you ask it to do the things that it's very capable of doing, like carrying a load, the result, which is the donkey is being useful, seems like a fair exchange that you're making with the donkey. I will take care of you and feed you, and you do this thing that you're good at doing. Donkeys are very strong, and they can carry a lot of weight. In the wild, they're not, you're not going to see donkeys carrying weight. Obviously, this is something that humans have imposed on them. But I feel there's a lot of dignity in the animals that are useful to us. I'm impressed by, by the agreement that we've come to with them. It's to me very moving and it's very different from a pet where you, you have a really different relationship with them. To me, the sight of an animal working with a person to achieve something is, is very moving. I mean, I often point to um, the experience many people I know have when they see a seeing eye dog guiding someone. And this is, of course, a perfect example of an animal being very useful. And I find it very moving. I feel like this is amazing that this dog is doing a very hard job and they've had to be trained extensively to do it. And they're doing it pretty willingly. And they seem to get pleasure out of doing the job 
right. To me, that's very moving. And it doesn't mean that the animal is somehow less dignified. In fact, in my eyes, it kind of elevates them in a way that makes me really admire or appreciate the interesting relationship that we've been able to strike up with them. I'll say that your attitudes toward animals doesn't seem to be romanticized, that you understand that there are just differences between species and expectations and relationships they have with humans, and that you're not a, a bleeding heart in a way that you have to save every animal. I'm not. I love animals. I feel like they deserve our respect and awe, and they ought to live in the environments to which they are native. But I, I don't place animals above people. So I think that's maybe the dividing line between me and someone else who perhaps is more sentimental, more romantic in their view of animals, that somehow animals are, are more pure than people and in a way deserve better than people. I That I would not say, characterizes the way I look at them. I love animals. I like being around animals. And I also understand that they're animals and they're not people who happen to be in costume. They are distinct and separate species and have limitations within their, their own essence. I think people owe them a fair amount because we do control animals in much of our lives. And feeling responsibility is a little different from romanticizing them. So do you remember your very first interaction with an animal when you were young? Oh, what a good question. I do not. It was probably with a neighbor's dog or cat. We had a cat when I was very young. But my guess is that as an infant, I probably, you know, was in my stroller and had a dog walk by that I pet. Beyond that, the first experiences that I remember really vividly were going out into the country and seeing horses and petting and feeding horses and being really awed by them. These essays are so much about people and animals and the relationship between them. Do you have any other stories or anecdotes about encountering wild animals as not manipulated by humans? Oh, <laughs> I guess this was an encounter, though much of it took place while I was asleep. And this was a rather extraordinary experience. I was in Aspen, Colorado, visiting friends, and we were staying downstairs, and they were upstairs. And in the middle of the night, they heard a lot of noise in their kitchen, and they thought we were looking around for some snacks. And they were actually a little annoyed because they felt like we were making so much noise. So they came downstairs to say, hey, you know, are you looking for something and we'll get you a snack, whatever you want, and walked into their kitchen and there was a very large bear in the kitchen who had opened the door and come into the house and was going through their kitchen, pulling food out of the refrigerator, knocking stuff over. Well, they 
of course, went into a complete panic, called the police. In the meantime, we slept through this entire thing. We <laughs> didn't hear anything. A SWAT team arrived, you know, four police officers armed with tranquilizer guns. You know, they show up at the house. The bear ran out of the house, disappeared, ended up going into another house. In the morning, my son, who was maybe six years old at the time, came toddling downstairs and said, mommy, there's a bear in the kitchen. And, you know, when you hear this coming out of the mouth of a six-year-old, you assume it's some crazy fantasy. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, right, honey. There was a bear in the kitchen. And I put on my robe and my husband and I went up and there were our hosts in the kitchen and the kitchen was a mess. It was completely a wreck. And they said, I can't believe you guys slept through this. There was a huge bear in the house. So it was an encounter that didn't happen but it was an extraordinary encounter. You certainly could tell that there had been a bear in the kitchen. You know, the bear was eating frozen orange juice and eating the dog food and just basically going through every cupboard looking for what he wanted to snack on. I'm sorry that we missed the whole thing. I would have probably been terrified, but I would have loved to have seen the bear at least for a moment as he was in the kitchen. Now, there was a time when a, another ostensibly wild animal made its way into your apartment in New York. Yes, this occurred when I was first dating my husband, and we were about to have our first Valentine's Day together. I was very hopeful that he'd be romantic and bring me flowers and chocolate, you know, everything you would imagine for a typical Valentine's Day. And when the day rolled around, he said that he had gotten us tickets to see The Lion King, which I thought was very sweet and a very nice Valentine's gift. And he said, well, the tickets weren't for today, though, so we, we won't go today. He said instead he was going to have a friend drop over. His very close friend, Rick Lyon, was going to stop over. and I. I was a little less pleased by this because I thought, well, that doesn't seem very romantic to have a friend come over for Valentine's Day. But I just thought, well, you know, I'm going to just enjoy the day. Then he told me to change out of my outfit, which was something that I'd put on that I thought was very pretty for Valentine's Day. He said, put on something more casual. I was a little taken aback. So I changed and I came out and he said, no, 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 like really casual, like a sweatshirt and jeans. I was at this point getting kind of perturbed. I didn't understand it. I was sort of irritated and thought, well, this is very unromantic and I don't like it. And I'm very unhappy. Finally, the doorbell rang. And I was expecting it to be his friend. And I sort of sat in a sulky heap in the corner. And he said, I'll get it. I'll get it. And he went and opened the door. And in walked in a 200-pound lion, accompanied, of course, by some handlers. But it was a lion. It was a young lion. 
Well, can I just say it was very surprising. <laughs> I would say maybe the time in my life when I've been the most surprised. That I had no context to place this in. The lion stayed in my apartment for maybe 45 minutes. We fed him from a remove. This was not a tame lion. You know, they had two leashes on him. And so he was being controlled, but he was a wild animal. I got to touch him, though, you know, I had to stand so that he didn't see me. Because if you stand in front of them, they lock on you as prey. and you don't want to be in that position with a wild lion. And then finally it was his time to leave. And we went down in the elevator in my building. I was living in Manhattan, by the way, when this all took place, it was beyond description. It was unbelievable. The next Valentine's day, my husband said to me, I don't know what to do. I don't think I can top that. And I said, no, I don't think you can top that. I think that kind of nails it, that you can just bring me flowers. You know, you've done your duty for the most amazing Valentine surprise that anyone could ever have. So when years later you were writing about Kevin Richardson, who's known as the Lion Whisperer, did it change that memory a little bit and that, well, maybe we shouldn't treat these wild animals this way? Certainly. And in the case of this lion, the one who came to my apartment, the man who brought him was somebody who is deputized to take care of wild animals that have been seized from people who are keeping them illegally. He was not this guy's pet. This was an animal that had been seized by the police from someone who was keeping it, who had no authority to keep it. And this man who my husband had met had a large property where he would keep these animals until a proper home could be found for them at a zoo or wherever they would end up. So the idea of keeping an animal, an exotic animal as a pet is something that I've never felt was appropriate I feel even more strongly about it. And the story about Kevin Richardson, in fact, rather than celebrate the sort of extraordinary ability he has to interact with lions, the story behind it and how it came about actually is really a condemnation of keeping animals as pets that are not meant to be pets. The big problem, as I see it, is that, you know, people have a natural fascination with exotic animals and everybody wants to touch one. Uh, Of course you do. The idea of touching something that powerful and beautiful is an understandable impulse. The problem is when you set up circumstances that allow that to happen, you are dooming all of those animals to a pretty unhappy end. They can't be released to the wild. There are too many of them in zoos already, which you know may come as a surprise to people, but the zoos around the world 
have plenty of lions and tigers. They don't have space to constantly add more lions and tigers to their, their holdings. So all of these animals that are being handled and played with at Lion Park and these facilities that allow you to pet a baby lion or tiger or ocelot or what have you are the beginning of a very sad end for these animals. And I think it's important for people to know that. I mean, this happened at the county fair near my house in New York, that there was a wild animal petting zoo where you could pet a lion cub and hold it in your lap for $10 or some minimal charge. Well, like everybody, I never gave it a second thought beyond the idea that this was something cool to do. It's not cool. And so now that I know what the end game is, I would never do that again. And I would actually advocate really strongly against allowing those sorts of concessions to exist because they really aren't good. Does not matter how many ways you justify it, they shouldn't exist. And in looking at a couple of pieces, you were ahead of the curve on things like Tiger King, talking about domestic tiger hoarding, and also with uh, the documentary Blackfish, you talked about the, the fate of Keiko the orca. You've been very concerned about these kind of human interactions with these wild animals for a while. I think we need to be better educated about what the backstory is. And I'm not talking about that in a, a militant way or an advocacy way. I think when you are dealing with living beings, we all should be a little more educated about what the bigger story is. I was as uneducated as anybody, so I'm not putting myself forward at all as being self-righteous, not at all. In fact, I, at the county fair, petted a lion cub and thought it was an amazing experience. But now that I know what the bigger story is, I would never do it again. And I would have to say, I regret that I did it. I understand why I did it because on a superficial level, everybody would want to do it. It's exciting. But now that I understand the implications, I feel completely differently about it. And similarly, learning about orcas, learning about you know, many of these instances where we're interacting with wild animals, the desire to have them in our control and have access to them is very natural. Nobody is evil because they want that. You know, animals are awesome and the power of a wild animal is very appealing. Learning what it means to have these animals in captivity I think for most people will change their mind. And at the very least, you have to do it with the knowledge of what you're participating in. This book is not a book of advocacy by any means. It's really a book of stories with animals at the heart of them that are, to me, fascinating stories. I do think that you may come away from the book 
with a lot more knowledge about those interactions and perhaps change your mind about how you feel. I went to see an orca show at SeaWorld and I thought, oh my God, this is incredible. I'm, it's so exciting. I love seeing it. Then I did the story about Keiko and now I really feel like, what are we doing keeping orcas in captivity? I mean, you can't give an orca comfortable, natural life in captivity. It's not possible. And we really don't need to see orcas performing. I, I mean, we may wish for it, but we wish for a lot of things. <laughs> and we, they're not all things that we should be able to do. Maybe dog and pony shows should just be for dogs and ponies? Well, why not? Actually, one of the funniest, most delightful things I ever saw in my life was a performance of trained cats. And as somebody who has a cat, the idea of being able to train a cat to do anything is so unimaginable. I mean, cats resist. They simply will not do anything you ask them to do. Seeing this performance, I think it was 10 or 15 cats performing was absolutely remarkable. I mean, it was, it was as, as maybe I would say as amazing as seeing lions or tigers performing, but it's a lot, makes a lot more sense. It's, and to tell you the truth, it's probably just as hard to train a house cat as it is to train a lion. Uh, they're just smaller, but it was an incredible show. And you don't have to walk away from that feeling in the pit of your stomach that it's something you really shouldn't be doing. Since so many domesticated animals have shorter lifespans on average than humans do, do you think part of the thing of having a pet in your life teaches you about your own mortality in a way? Definitely. And that's the deep melancholy of pet ownership that only in the most rare instances do, do our pets outlive us. Seeing a pet age is a very humbling experience. And the fact is, it's not that different from how people age. One of my dogs is 11 and she's a little hard of hearing and she sleeps more than she used to and she's more irritable than she used to be, but she's also more affectionate when she's in the mood. Her face now is very white. I can tell she has cataracts. You know, there's a familiarity in, in the process of aging that I see in her that I can apply to myself and think, oh, I know those feelings. I have those feelings. When I wake up in the morning, I'm, I'm a lot stiffer than I used to be. What animals do, though, is they seem to lean into their aging with no self-consciousness. People are a lot more fragile in terms of their egos than animals. And we fight aging tooth and nail. Animals accept the process of life very comfortably. And, you know, some people say that's because they have no ability to project into the future and picture their own deaths. But I'm not sure it's quite like that. 
I mean, it may be that they don't have those anxieties in the middle of the night thinking I'm not as young as I used to be. Maybe they just have a more kind of be here now perspective, which is this is the moment and this is who I am in this moment. And that's pretty inspiring, really. Well, Susan, I want to thank you so very much for taking some time out of your day to speak with us on Book Talk. It has been a pleasure and a half. Thank you so much. It's really been my honor to be with you. Take care now. You too. Susan Orlean is the author of On Animals, which is published by Avid Reader Press. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced by Stephen Ussery and is recorded in the studios of WYPL in Memphis, Tennessee. Any retransmission or reproduction without the express written consent of FM 89.3 WYPL of the Memphis Public Library and Information Center, a department of the City of Memphis, is strictly prohibited.